Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in this episode I'm joined by a true icon of the music world, and that's no exaggeration, who's decided it's time to write and spill all in his long-awaited autobiography, which is titled Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. It gives me enormous pleasure to introduce Elvis Costello. Welcome. It's good to be here. Elvis, thank you. Uh, I think we met 105 years ago on Spice World, the movie, but I won't embarrass you anymore on that. Oh, now I've been asked questions about that recently on my book tour. Moving swiftly <laughs> on. Unlike many sporting or musical autobiographies, this one is your pen and yours alone. Now, were there times that you had wished that you had a ghostwriter? Never. I'm just rotten at seances. I, I, I never, never occurred to me that that would even be a way of doing it. I undertook to write a book. Yeah. Uh, ten years ago, having first been asked to write an autobiography at the age of 24. Of course. A proposition that seemed completely <laughs> ludicrous. I was asked again when I was in my late 30s, and I still didn't feel right about it. And even over the last ten years, I started a couple of books which were of a different nature until I eventually talked my way into the structure that is in this book, which is obviously doesn't begin I was born and go on through the usual procession of laughter and tears and yeah. my drug hell and the <laughs> conversion to an esoteric religion. It, I didn't want to do that book. And I realized that if I was going to write anything that would matter to me, it would probably be guided by experiences of witnessing music as a child and how it, that might have popped out in my professional life and the feelings behind songs and the feelings behind those experiences. And in the editing process, were other people involved throughout the stages of it, or did you write the whole thing over 10 years? I, I wrote the whole thing probably over the last uh, four, four and a half years, I suppose. But because I'm not a full-time author, you know, uh, I'm breaking off to do tours, and even I found myself, much to my surprise, even making a couple of records that I hadn't even planned to make because I was involved in a couple of cooperative projects that, that I didn't instigate. And, and, of course, just living life, you know. I mean, I have eight-year-old twin boys, so that in itself is, you know, you can't be selfish in regard of following any one of the artistic pursuits. So do you have a uh, writing routine because of your twins that you would write at a certain time of the day? Or? Not really, no. I just would grab all the time. I, I've always written the same way for songs, and I saw no reason to change it. I'm fortunate in that I've always been able to block out everything around me, probably to the exasperation of uh, almost anybody talking to me and I can't hear them. Uh, but there were times when obviously I went into a room and closed the door and took the phone off the hook and worked for concentrated periods for, for days on end, if not weeks on end. But I had no... My romantic idea was I would go down to a little hut by a calm yeah. lake and sit there with an old Remington and, and type it all out, you know, and, and then... a. But, of course, life's not like that. My, my, I have a beautiful wife who would... She was my... Not the editor, but she was my uh, the one who kind of said, "No, you you have to write it down, because you know one day hopefully my lads will be curious about what their dad did. Right now they're too young to barely know what I do at all, and I wouldn't want them getting the account of the good or the bad that, of the things I've done from somebody else. From, well, from from a, an accumulation of ba old interviews on the internet or yeah. written by people who have a grudge or something to prove, you know. So in a sense, your career was perhaps predestined given your musical genes. Now, let's hear a clip from the audiobook, which you read. It's from right at the start where you describe listening to your dad performing at the Hammersmith Palais. While other dads came home at 5.30, my father went to work at 6pm, or in this case, on Saturday afternoon, 
to sing with the Joe Loss Orchestra. The walls of the palais looked as if they were made of dark velvet, but it came off like powder if you ran your hand along it. It smelt and felt strange. It didn't seem like a place for children. Today it is hard to imagine any establishment opening in the afternoon for so few patrons. But when the Joe Loss Orchestra evolved into view on a turntable bandstand, you would forget it was still light outside. I was given a bottle of lemonade and a packet of crisps and was secured in the balcony overlooking the dance floor with strict instructions not to speak to anyone. The clientele were as curious as they were sparse in number. When I pointed out that two old ladies were dancing together, they were identified as spinsters. There was a mother teaching her young daughter dance steps, sometimes lifting her onto her own feet to give the girl the sense of the right rhythm. Commanding the floor with the competition dancers, who used the Saturday matinees for practice sessions. They jealously guarded their territory, intolerant of more frivolous obstacles like children. From my vantage point, their haughty expressions and sudden frozen poses seemed quite comical as they cocked their heads and made pecking movements with their necks like chickens. There could also be something quite intimidating about them, especially when they launched into a gallop during the quick step. Foot soldiers fear cavalry charges for the same reason. There was nobody else up in the balcony except for the woman who checked coats and another who sold refreshments at the kiosk. I think my dad had charged one of them with checking on me from time to time to make sure I hadn't wandered off. She needn't have worried. My eyes were fixed on the bandstand. Okay, Elvis, your father looms large over the whole book. There's almost a book within the book on your dad. His relationship with you was obviously very, very close, despite a fractured childhood. Well, I realised when he was in his last illness, he had Parkinson's and... You know, his memory was eroded and his cognition was diminished. Uh-huh. That I would try to speak to him the memories of the time we'd spent together. I ran out of experiences very quickly. It might even be that almost everything that happened between us is written in the book because it was in hours very little time that we spent together. Maybe only two holidays or, or such that we spent together, two or three holidays. Because we ended up doing a similar job, of course, my observation and my memory of of those experiences, such as the one we just heard, are very vivid and had a big impact. And my mother was the one who raised me. And my mother worked in music as well. She sold records. So my parents met across a record shop counter. You know, she was the girl in Bennett's record shop that knew about jazz, a, a smaller shop that she had moved to after an apprenticeship in, in a grand emporium of music called Rushworth and Draper's, where she had gone to work at the age of 14 in 1943. So by the time my parents met in the late 40s, they knew a lot about what they wanted from music and ended up sort of being a partnership in a way. My mum took money on the door while my dad tried to play bebop to unwilling ears in Birkenhead. They came south. He tried to break into modern jazz in London while she worked at Selfridges in the record department, you know, and so when I uh, write about it, it seems as if my dad's influence on me is sort of regarded more romantically, but I think it's only because if I were to write down all the things my mother did, they would be the same things that most people's mother would do, you know, don't put your fingers in the plug. Is that coat warm enough? Have you had enough to eat? And also the fact that I shared music with her too. In some ways, she perhaps knew more range of music than my dad because she was obliged to know about it in order to sell records in the days before computers, you know, where you had to be able to look into a catalogue to recommend 
maybe one of five renditions of a hit tune and which recording of a symphony. So you were just genetically imprinted right from birth with music from both sides. I was to some degree, yeah. It was it was the business anyway, you know. So you've brought objects today that obviously informed your book. And the first one is your dad's scrapbook stroke photo album. And with your dad's work, how much time did you actually spend with him? He would take me to the Hammersmith Palais on Saturday afternoons. I don't suppose it was many occasions, but they really were imprinted on my mind because it was my dad's place of work. And it, he went to work mostly in the evening as other dads came home. And I would go to the Playhouse Theatre here on Friday lunchtimes to see the Jolos Pop Show, which was broadcast from there. Obviously, I could only do that when I was on school holidays or I was off sick. I'd go with my dad early in the morning, watch rehearsals, and then at one o'clock the light would go on and everything would go from a rather mundane workaday atmosphere to, well, there was a live audience and there was a, an announcer and... And they would play In the Mood. And then my dad and the other singers would sing chart hits. And then there would actually be a group from the charts. On one occasion, it was the Hollies. When my dad passed, obviously, a a lot of his memorabilia passed into my hands. Uh, His scrapbook is something that was kept from... I'm not sure whether he kept it or my grandmother kept it. I mean, it was obviously made with a moment of pride because the cover of the now-worn photographic album has a a sticker on it that obviously had printed. It was his first quintet, the Ross McManus uh, quintet with the the legend Rockin' with Ross. And, uh, you know, it, it somewhat peeled off. And as you open it up, the book has a few photographs of him performing, but more often business cards of saxophone players that he worked with you know I know it was a struggle I know from what my mum told me that they were as I was in the early 70s taking just a few pennies over through the door playing the music they wanted to play and putting it back into next week's engagement people were just probably playing more or less for expenses and for the love of the music let's hear a clip from the audio book in which you describe your early memories of the first family home in Ars Court Sir Edward Elgar had once lived in the opposite building, but this must have been before the road went all to hell. The basement dwelling at 46A Avonmore Road was my first family home. Just a couple of rooms decorated in bohemian style, thanks to the gift of paintings from an artist friend of my folks. Cotton hangings and lampshades were printed with a voguish abstract pattern. What I came to know as modern jazz played on the record player. The geography and geometry of that dwelling has been my compass ever since. To this day, I determine left and right with a mental snapshot of that hallway. The door to the living room, with its couch, standard lamp and gas fire, is to my right. The staircase ascending to a locked door through which we would occasionally pass into the landlady's rooms to use a shared bathroom is to my left. Straight ahead is a Belfast sink in what would have been the downstairs kitchen of the integral house. It doubled as a bath for a toddler. Outside the back door was a tiny courtyard around a black manhole above an unseen drain. Boy-eating spiders almost certainly lurked behind the rough wooden door to our outside lavatory. Beyond a steep brick wall there was a railway line. Pillars of smoke and steam were sometimes visible and the rattle of carriages and the squeal and the clank and the clack of wheels rolling over the points were frequently heard. What I'm so struck by is that your description of this, it, it's, it's almost like the equivalent of Rosebud in Citizen Kane, that going back to this childhood description, and that is the compass for the rest of your life, that that remains as a sort of barometer of your life. 
yeah, I, I'm not I'm not at all nostalgic. I don't ever long to go back, but I think with words you can evoke experiences, your memories, and that's what I felt I would need to do in order to to describe where all these uh, formative experiences occurred. I mean, uh, it's it's that living room of this little basement flat where I heard I've got you under my skin for the first time, where I looked at the cover of uh, Songs for Young Lovers, a 10-inch record sleeve. I can see that cover in my mind and I can imagine, I remember holding it as a child and not knowing what it meant. And then, of course, later on, I did know what it meant. meant. You know, I understood what the songs that I'd heard, they were all familiar to me. And that's that's something that occurs over and over again. It's tied to a specific experience and even a specific location. And then much later, its emotional weight hits you when you're ready to receive it, when when you need it even. When and you all need of it. this came through the second object, which was your parents' record player. Many records turned up, including many hot-off-the-press acetate cuts of Beatles recordings. Do you still have any of these? The acetates I do and the A-labels, that these were records that my dad was given to learn weekly when the Joe Lost Pop Show was on the radio on the BBC. That was, and so, you know, while my friend's parents were banging on the door saying, turn that music down, my yeah. dad was in our front room with that music turned full up so he could sing along with it and learn the melodies. It just so happened that Please Please Me was the first one that I was, I was so drawn to the song that I actually asked him for that copy. I, I don't know what happened to the records before Please Please Me. He must have given them away. Some of them he kept. If he liked the record himself, he kept it. I mean, we had a, a, a few of them on the shelf that he had said, oh, I like that record, I'll keep it. But I asked him for Please Please Me and he gave it to me. And from then on, it became sort of, I would see what was coming out in the charts and a couple of weeks later, the song would appear and I would hope that my dad would be detailed to sing it on the radio, and that would mean he would bring home a, a copy. Where do you keep all this stuff? I, I keep them in a drawer. Obviously, you keep something like that safe. Those records were like swallow after, you know, destroy after reading type yeah. of uh, spy movie. Mission Impossible. Yeah, a bit like that. They, they weren't designed to be played endlessly. Those acetates break down after a few plays. So they're literally just to impart the music, and then you have to learn it, and then it stops playing. So I'm not sure the music is still in the grooves, uh -huh. but the objects are beautiful. And I also, I'm fond of them because they remind me of my dad working in that way. And, and at the time, there was something special about them to me because I, I although I knew in my heart they were the same recording as the one on the album the fact that they'd come down this secret track directly from the Beatles somehow to me in my head you know there was something that I had that nobody else had I mean that sounds like privilege beyond measure to me have you still got the record player uh, it was a decadecalion that we had and, and there's we pictures of me sitting there's a picture in the book of me sitting there with a sort of cap yeah. and, a, and a toy rifle. And I remember I was listening to a song called Two Brothers, which was a one war blue, one war, war gray. It was about the American Civil War that I was obsessed with when I was about seven. I don't even remember who sang it. There's another beautiful picture of my mother sitting in our basement in Olympia, probably listening to Jerry Mulligan or something, you know, and with very modish decorations. I mean, they, they, my, my folks, they didn't have a lot of money at that time, but they, they had a few friends who were painters and they had nice, like a modern painting on the wall that a friend of theirs had done. It get, made the place kind of stylish. And when I look at it now, it would be very, people would love to have the, that, that record player. My, my mother sold, actually, they actually even sold record players. 
uh, in she worked for Selfridges. She, some, I asked her, how did you get that job, ma'am? You came down from Liverpool. How did you get a job in Selfridges? Pretty posh shop, you know. Yeah. And she said I was just young and cocky. And <laughs> it so happened that they were getting rid of their piano department at the time. They needed a, a young person who knew about modern music. So she got the job and and she told me a tale only recently of... Uh, she said, well, it was that day that I got into an argument with Orson Welles. I said, what? <laughs> you never mentioned that before. And and apparently Welles was in London making a film with Henry Hathaway and, and some awful film and that he was playing a Mongol warlord or something. And it was a not, not one of his most glorious moments. And he came into the shop and they had the Pie Black Box, which was, I think, the first portable record player on sale in England. And he tried to buy what was the demonstration model. And they didn't they didn't have any stock. It was just a sort of prediction of the future. We've got one, but we can't actually sell it to yeah. you. This'll be what's coming along soon. Like, just to taunt the customer. Yeah, like like moving sidewalks and, and jetpacks, yeah. you know, yeah. that vision of the future. And uh, of course she's a young woman from Liverpool who just knows about music and she suddenly got this large thespian shouting until they had to call the store detective, you know. So it's a wonderful image, my mother having an argument with Orson Welles. You know, so. But record shops generally and their almost mystical qualities feature a great deal in the book. So because of your father's job and your mother's, did you inadvertently become an avid collector right from the get-go? I've never been a collector in the sense of being obsessed uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the label is a different colour or they misprinted the titles on that kind of collector, yeah. stamp collecting type of mentality. It was always about what was in the grooves. I, I didn't. I only had as much money as any kid. I had I had the great advantage in the 60s of this line of free singles. That ran out when my dad left Joe Loss in the late 60s, although he did sometimes pass on albums that he was listening to because he would go through albums looking for lightly songs to sing in a working men's club in Wakefield because that's what he did then after he played the social clubs and working men's clubs up north. and sang a lot of songs of... He, he wanted to sing about songs of peace and love. I mean, he kind of grew his hair long and went in that direction. So, oddly enough, while I was listening to Tamla and, and Rocksteady, he was listening to Surrealistic Pillar by the Jefferson Airplane. It was all backwards. It was always... Everything about this story is sort of backwards to my friend's experience of the generation gap. But by then, of course, I was buying my own albums and finding my own way through them. So from record shops to music shops, your next object is one that is pretty central to your musical development. And that is the third object that you brought in, which is your guitar. It saw you through your teenage years and you wrote the whole of your first album on it. Can you tell me about the shop that you bought it from? Yes, I can. Well, the shop that I bought it from was Potter's Music Shop in Richmond. And it's where I bought my very first guitar, which was which was also a good instrument, but it was, you know, it was, a, it was ideal for a beginner. And then I invested in this Harmony Sovereign Deluxe. I mean, little did I know that it would become a, a very um, sort of guitar that people would envy you owning. It wasn't particularly expensive, but it was at least had a proper name. You know, Harmony was a real guitar company. And it had fancy scratch plates, and it looked like something. And probably those scratch plates made it a bit quieter than some other guitars, but... I mean, it took very well to the sort of playing that I did. I put a little pickup on it. By then, I thought I had some songs that were worthwhile. So all my first songs that got me my record contract with Stiff Records and the ones that were played on local London radio were written on that guitar. But the curious thing is that, that a friend of mine took a picture that 
there was there was a lad at my school in Liverpool who took he he, he took photographs as a hobby. You know, he was a pretty good photographer. He was he was one of my good friends when I moved there in seventy. And in early '72, he was killed in a in just a really random traffic accident right outside the school in front of us. And um, you know, at that age, it was one of those really shocking things that brought you to account. It was obviously a horrendous experience, and to see him when we went back to school, I couldn't take it seriously. I couldn't. I realised that, that that you you know, yeah. I think at 17, you sort of think you're immortal, and 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 you have all the kinds of crazy ideas. I did anyway. I had I had all sorts of very, very pious ideas that music was somehow above commerce and I would just have music in this precious place for me and my parents had obviously parted so I sort of felt in some way that music had had some part in that in that my dad had obviously allowed himself to drift into temptation because he'd been in the public eye and I didn't think I was going to do that. I didn't think I was... I thought there was a vanity in that, if you know what I mean. So I didn't didn't imagine I was going to pursue music as an occupation. And then when my friend was killed, I, I, I sort of, it brought me up sharp. I thought, am I really going to go to a polytechnic and get a, a third-rate degree and, and be some teacher? Because that's where I was headed. I'd already passed on being a priest when I was about 10. The nuns had tried to get me to go and be a priest because I was kind of a holy-looking kid. And so that was, that, was the, that was the third job, you know, that, I, that I'd considered. So you had I mean, no doubt that you would be... That that was your path. I and didn't know it was going to work out, and that's when I, you know, the group I had in Liverpool. The little, well, it was a group when I joined it. It was a four-piece, and within six months it was a duo. So that tells you something, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, we sent our demos off and had them promptly sent back, and I think we thought, you know, we had something. And I've heard them more recently. My friend Alan gave me a tape that we recorded in my bedroom and I yeah. very, very faithfully recite his address at the end of it to any willing A&R man. It's quite sad. But the, but the songs, you know, you could, I could hear why we thought we had something, but of course they, you know, they lacked that little bit of a hook to, to really push us out into the public. And maybe if we had got somewhere at... Uh, the age of uh, 17, we, it would have all been over by the time we were 21, instead of which I didn't get that little break until 22. And and as much as it blew my life to pieces because of my own self-indulgence at times and, and idiocy, I ended up writing songs that have carried me through 40 years, you know, and I've led to the other songs I've written. What I so love about your book is that you talk about Aretha and Bert and Paul on first name terms, because you are, you feel that you're being, you're just incorporated into as a reader and invited into this world that you occupy. You were working, I think, at Abbey Road, and you met Linda McCartney mm. in because her, her little the no actually that the was little air, boy that came. was Air Studios. It was Air, air Studios, Studios, which Sorry. was sort of where the people from Abbey Road went after Abbey Road, like George Martin founded that studio, yeah. and George was down the hallway working with Paul McCartney on one of his solo records while the Attractions and I were in the next studio working on Imperial Bedroom with Jeff Emmerich, who, of course, was the engineer of both Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and was also the engineer most of the time on Paul's record. So he was working on both records at the same time, which meant a couple of things. You know, the proximity that our engineer was at least being consulted from time to time about the progress... And it didn't seem, and prior to that, we'd worked in studios where there was only one room and we went there and closed the door and didn't come out until we made a record. We had allowed ourselves 12 weeks of studio time, an incredible luxury of time. We were, I suppose, in the moment where 
the studio was more like a playground or a laboratory rather than just somewhere we went in and got it all down on tape as fast as possible. We'd all read about the Beatles, you know, hired the orchestra just to play that end chord of Day in the Life. Well, maybe we could do our version of that. You know, if we need a harpsichord, we can get one, you know. And it was the, a record where I was trying different types of song form and the band were very imaginative and the things that they did independently, individually, as well as the way we played as an ensemble, took full advantage of this bigger space that we were working in. And Jeff, of course, because he had worked with everybody from Otto Klemper to Judy Garland when he was an engineer at Abbey Road. They, you know, they, it was a sort of um, more like being at the BBC or somewhere where there were shifts and people came, oh, you're in the morning and you're going to yes. do... Otto Klemperer and <laughs> the Philharmonia. And then in the afternoon, uh, Miss Judy Garland's coming in. In the evening, you're going to make uh, Tomorrow Never Knows with this group, the Beatles, and then have some biscuits. I mean, it's, you know, that is really the way he describes it in his book. You know, and I, I've worked with musicians that worked in the Los Angeles uh, recording studio scene in the 1960s and they were doing the theme from the Flintstones in the morning and pet sounds in the afternoon. It, of course, when you're a working musician, you probably can't even distinguish which are the sessions that are going to go on to be legendary. So we had never worked in a, in a studio format like that where Paul McCartney is in Studio One, we're in Studio Two, and the little mixing studio in the middle might have Alice Cooper in there or Duran Duran or, or whoever it is, you know. Uh, that was... a a curious proximity to go to the rec room at the studio and play pool with these upstarts from Birmingham, the the Duran Duran who were coming up the charts then, or find Paul McCartney at the Asteroids Machine, or uh, yeah, it was a like a factory but populated by these people, you know. But you have what seems like a photographic memory because this is a whopper of a book. I mean, it's how many pages have we got here? It's six hundred and seventy. Six hundred and seventy pages. That is, that's a lot of pages. Yeah, I didn't realise that. And, you know, because the unconventional uh, structure so that it doesn't begin, I was born and, and which I, I stopped. Because it's which how, which how allowed me speak. to make the connections between things that mattered to me rather than things that were just dictated by the calendar. And I, I, there's things I left out. I didn't go into every single argument, every vicious word that may have been said, that may have informed songs. I, I, I hope I've taken responsibility for some of the pain that I inflicted through my impulsiveness, which nevertheless created songs that have taken me through until this day. But I also wanted to be able to underline that the emotional weight of some songs and the motivation to write them at all was, isn't exclusive to the songs that make a big display of emotion. In other words, songs that are very raw in sound are not the only ones that are deeply felt. And some of the lyrics that I wrote for those songs are some of the bleakest because they were in a time that I suppose I was in a bleak frame of mind for various reasons. I haven't described all of the way I got there, but I did want to be honest about those songs were not exercises in doing something for self-aggrandizement. They were as raw as the rock and roll songs. In fact, in some cases, they were they were darker and bleaker and if there was anger, there was might have been a director myself, but it was the idea that I was defined by one or two quotations was kind of idiotic, you know. One of the stories I enjoyed was your recollection of appearing on Top of the Pops, and here's a clip from the audiobook. Mm-hmm. 
The whole process of appearing on top of the pops had more than an element of school antics about it. As pop musicians were barely tolerated in Television Centre, the purpose-built studio complex in White City. The main excitement of rehearsals was the chance that we might encounter the Legs and Co. dance troupe in the hallway. I have to say they were long-suffering and more than able to swat away the attentions of various spotty Herberts. Then there was the sport of taking the piss out of rival groups by standing behind the cameraman and trying to put them off their cues. We'd watch, say, Generation X and count to three when we sensed that Billy Idol or the guitar player Tony James were going to jump and strike a rocker pose and we'd all leap in the air a half a beat ahead of the moment. Following rehearsals, there would be the sport of trying to get into the BBC club and get drunk enough to enjoy the evening. At the door, there was a uniformed commissioner who sported an impressive handlebar moustache and a chest full of medals and ribbons. He guarded the entrance to the club as if his life and the future of the Empire depended on it. We could always find someone to sign a couple of us in as guests, but getting the entire group into the premises usually involves some kind of diversion. By the time I'd enjoyed a fistful of subsidised gin and tonics, my ability to credibly mime our record became a bit questionable. For the first few appearances, I tried to memorise the order of red lights that indicated the active camera, staring down the lens looking suitably intense or manic until somebody pointed out that it looked bloody stupid. I was amazed by a comment that you made about record sales and how your sales of Oliver's Army were 500,000, but you didn't even get to number one in the charts, whereas those sales now you'd be number one for a year. At least a year. Yeah. So how do you feel about the way that the music business has changed? I made a decision pretty early on when writing the book that I wasn't writing a music business memoir. I was writing about music and life and feelings and, you know, misadventure of the heart and joy of the heart as well. But I didn't name very many music business people. I named my first manager because it obviously features in some of the major decisions. But I didn't feel it was one where I had to name check everybody that I'd ever worked with or go back over all those old arguments because that's a different kind of book. And people frequently ask me, well, what do you think of the business model today because it's completely changed since your day? And I say in the latter part of the book that I realize now I was lucky to work in the short period, and it was a relatively short period, between the time when they bought your songs for the price of a keys to the Cadillac or $50 or something, and now when it's all supposed to be free and you're supposed to be honoured by the fact that everybody films you, everything you do with a phone camera and then puts it on YouTube and they're evangelising you or there are various organisations offering your records because the record companies have obviously provided them with the masters and they're making them available for streaming for which you don't get paid or you get paid absolute pittance, much less than the jukebox. You know, the criminals who own the jukebox uh, industry in the 40s paid their artists. So as a business model, it doesn't hold up, but that's a different book. I can tell you, in as long as it took me to say that, what I believe, you can probably guess what I think about it, but I can't change it. So I have to carry on with my life. In 2010, I decided to devote my time to playing in performance, which of course preceded recorded music as a very able way for minstrels to play. You yeah. know, Nobody had any problem with it. Have you influenced your children already, your twins? No, I think they're quite the opposite. All of my sons have influenced me with their love of music in different ways. My eldest son has so much knowledge about music, he makes me seem like I know nothing. Uh, you know, I, he's got to it through uh, his own love and his own perspective, through his, the fact that his mother, you know, appreciates music in the, the same way. I, I'm, you know, I fell in love with her when I 
I was 14 and we were at school together. So, I mean, I, of course, you're never going to stop loving somebody like that. It's deeply painful to me that I broke both our hearts with the selfish things I did. But uh, And it's no consolation that I wrote a bunch of successful songs out of that process. But I can't wish it be different than it is now because I am in the life I'm in now and I don't know how you get from A to B or, or any of the places I've been in between. I don't mean disrespect in the brevity with which I speak of my second marriage, but there aren't as many things to remark upon that I make the opening of the relationship one of danger and the end of it one of, of darkness and the bits in between are nobody's business. And it's not my business to drag everybody in my, that I've ever known in my life out of the shadow that they may choose to live in. Mm. You know, they might want, not want that attention. There was no obligation on my part to reveal everything, any more than it is to write about every single song I wrote or every album that I ever put my name on. Some did, have mattered more to me than others. You did know. you self consciously self-edit what you would or wouldn't say about about something in case of... Well, I wasn't in them. a band with other people. I've never really been in a four-headed band like, yeah. uh, like a Beatles or, or like Keith Richards say. His book I found most fascinating when he was speaking about how he decoded Howling Wolf Records as a kid yeah. and how it led to to Jumping Jack Flash. You know, you can hear the root of those records in it. I was less interested in who has the bigger equipment, him or Mick, myself. I, I understand Agreed. why I understand why editors <laughs> or, and, and journalists writing about it would be fascinated by that, but I'm, that's not really my speed. Segwaying onto your fourth object, a referee's whistle. Well, this... This I would I would choose one because there was a brief moment where I deluded myself that I might play centre forward for Liverpool or at least inside right, but uh, of course I was quickly disabused of this. <laughs> but more especially because when I first left school, I got a job with what was then the Midland Bank. In fact, the third day I was there, the, the assistant manager said, "Take this whistle." I said, "What's that for?" He said, "Just in case." So, just in case of what? He said just in case of a robbery, and he wanted me to stand outside the, the bank with the whistle while they were delivering bullion, and if some bandits had come along, I was supposed to blow it, and I mean, I'm not an idiot, you know, I mean, who do you think they're going to shoot first? They're going to shoot the idiot with the whistle, you know. So I didn't last very long in that. I mean, what's extraordinary, you read about your early life scattered throughout the book, and in fact, Unfaithful Music doesn't follow a typical narrative for an autobiography. It skips around all over the decades. In a sense, you've been breaking conventions all your life. Did it seem as though you were doing so with this book? And was that deliberate? I just knew it wasn't. I mean, I, I knew I had uh, I had written one chapter where I tried to write a conventional beginning. Yeah. And it's, and it was, a, but it contained a joke, you know. And uh, I, and once I had written that joke, it was. It was I was born in the same hospital in which uh, Sir Alexander Fleming invented penicillin, and I apologise in advance for not being the boon to mankind. Same boon to mankind. Once I'd written that line, I knew I couldn't open the book with that line. Yeah. I mean, it, it it was a joke that had to come later, and I mean, I ended up writing um, a couple of very contrasting chapters to open. One, the one you spoke of earlier, where I was looking at my dad on the stage of the Hammersmith Palace when I was seven, which was obviously. One of the perspectives that, that's led me to see music differently, the second described the awful moment when my friend was killed when I was 17, which probably set me on the path of playing music. Well, that's what, that's what makes the book such an unputdownable read. And I read a review in the LA Times by David Ulin, which called it 
less a memoir than extended riff, not a poem but a song cycle, lyrics written in a notebook over 40 years. Do you think that's, that's an accurate assessment? Well, it's a very... I think music is actually quite hard to describe um, in the same way as when people try to pay you a compliment as a lyricist, they say, oh, you're a poet. I go, no, I'm not. I'm a lyricist. This is a very different thing. Poets write words where you, there is music present when none is playing. Yeah. And if I were a poet, I'd be a lot more accurate. Uh, I'm, I'm a lyricist because I can cheat because of the things that music carries. Music carries feeling. Therefore, music is elusive to description. And even the description of music is elusive to description, as he just as he proved there, yeah. because he can only compare it to things that exist. I'm not saying I don't accept those remarks as compliments, and I'm grateful that they saw value in it. But it is actually quite difficult to describe music because it operates in a realm that is outside of words. And, you you know, steel guitars are always lachrymose in criticism. You know, strings are always syrupy or, if you don't approve of them, cheesy. They're never kind of the qualities that are embodied, say, in Bruckner's Ninth. I don't think you would you would call no. that syrupy or cheesy, you know. No. Not unless you're Norman Lebrecht, you know, somebody like that. And a provocateur. Is is there an, a lyricist that you admire above all others? Not above all others, no. I mean, there's different ones that I love very much. I mean, uh, Lawrence Hart, mm-hmm. um, Hank Williams, for very different reasons. Yeah. Obviously, Bob Dylan, you know, and and, the, and these people who are singular. Tom Waits and Kathleen Brennan for their imagination. There may be trouble ahead. You know, that just even just that line, that's the opening line of Let's Face the Music and Dance. The words are few and they're plain. They're plain spoken. But the great skill of them was to capture a moment and singing in the rain is a great song for the same reasons, you know. One final question for me, which is a question that you asked Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Her greatest lyricist and music, and she said Dylan, and for music she said Miles Davis. So this is the short answer that I want <laughs> no, from you. She, she, I didn't ask her. I, I said peers. Oh, peers. Peers. Right. So that was a pretty grand statement. She said Dylan for words, Miles for music. I mean, if you were asking me peers, all of the above. All I of would the above. Be, <laughs> I mean, favorite, I, I, it would change every day. That would be equally impossible to answer. I mean, the book should tell you that, that, yeah. that it changes moment to moment, you know. Mr. Elvis Costello, every time I've tried to pin you like a butterfly to the wall of saying, give me your favourite this or that, you have absolutely evaded and gone well, on I, most I can, fantastic I always, voyage, I always, which I've loved. I, well, thank you, and it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. I suppose that I, if I am devious or ingenious, it's only to invite that wonderful phrase, now read on. Now because, read on. Now read on. Now because, listen on. Because if you... I tried to answer the emotional response to all of these questions that you've given me. Um, and uh, I could... You, some of them are found in the book. And then, then, of course, by the time the ink was dry, some of those observations might have changed already in time. And that's the beauty of a life in music or a life generally. The perfect note on which to end this podcast. <laughs> Mr Elvis Costello, thank you. A privilege and an enormous pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Richard.
Now, from Elvis Costello to another music legend, Neil Young shares his story in his own words, including his lifelong curiosity about cars. There was an old Model A or Model T Ford parked on the road near school, and when we walked home for lunch every day, we would pass it. It was black and boxy, unlike any of the newer cars, and we were curious about it. Perhaps I was most curious. One day I got in it and turned the key. The car started to move. I was driving. It was my first drive. As long as I held the key on, the car would move. The owner came out and busted me right there. He told me he was going to tell my mom and dad. I was scared as hell. I walked and walked, terrified to go home for lunch. I missed lunch and went back to school, which got my mom and dad upset. I got in big trouble and confessed to my driving episode myself without the man who owned the car ever having to tell them anything. The audiobook of Special Deluxe, a memoir of life and cars, is available now on iTunes and Audible.